Good morning, loved ones. I am so happy uh, to be joining with you uh, during this time of digital worship. Uh, I pray that during this time, uh, you will just feel the Lord's presence with you, uh, that as we uh, read the word together and as we unpack it together, that you will just feel the spirit moving your hearts, uh, that you will draw close to God and that you will just honor and revere and rejoice in his name during this time. Uh, I'm very excited about the sermon today. I have a lot to say, uh, so let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and then we'll jump right on into Hebrews 9. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity, for this time to escape from the cares and the concerns and the worries of the world. And Lord, just to spend time in your presence, to praise you, Lord, to rejoice in your name, Lord, uh, to study your word, Lord, and just to, to honor and glorify you. Lord, I pray that you will just bless this time that we have together. Lord, I pray that you will give us ears that are ready to hear and hearts that are ready to be stirred by your spirit, Lord. And let your message resonate with us today, Lord, and let us hide your word in our hearts, Lord, so that we can uh, walk in your path, Lord, so that we can follow you more closely and so that we might not sin against you, Father. Lord, be with us now. Bless this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, loved ones, for the last three weeks, we have been uh, examining the old covenant that God made with Israel, and we've been comparing that old covenant to the new covenant that God gave us a glimpse of in Jeremiah chapter 31. And as we've been in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 9, we've really had an opportunity to really explore the Old Covenant, to dive deeply into the Old Testament, Old Covenant laws and regulations, and to unpack how those things really help us to better understand God and how they revealed God to us in the first place. But so far, as we've been discussing the Old Covenant, we've only focused on the negative aspects of that covenant. And what I mean is this, that we've really focused a lot of attention on the things that the Old Covenant could not do, how it could not perfect our conscience, how it could not give us salvation, uh, and how it could not fix us of our sinful nature. And our discussion, more or less to this point, has helped us reach the conclusion and has helped us see that the Old Covenant was designed to point us toward the New Covenant that God would enact when he sent the Messiah to us. And today, we're going to continue in that same uh, vein, and we're going to see a shift. We're going to see where the author shifts uh, his argument a little bit, and where the author begins to explain to us what the New Covenant really is, uh, how it's superior to the Old Covenant, and how it was finally enacted. And today, we're going to focus our attention on Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. And in those verses, we're going to see where the author explains two crucial aspects of the Old Covenant to us. Excuse me, two crucial aspects about the New Covenant. I need to get my covenant straight. So we're going to focus on two aspects of the New Covenant. And today we're going to look at, uh, we're going to see how the author explains to us how Christ enacted the New Covenant and how Christ fixes us. So if you would, join with me now 
Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. And it says this, But now Christ has come as the high priest of the good things to come. He passed through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And he entered once and for all into the most holy place, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And so he himself secured eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on those who are defiled, consecrated them, and provided ritual purity, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from the dead works to worship the living God? So the first thing that we see here in verse 11 is that there has been a complete shift, that everything we've talked about to, uh, up to this point regarding the Old Covenant is now no longer important. And this shift is uh, symbolized by the arrival of Christ into the world. His arrival signaled the beginning of this new covenant. And it showed that God was finally moving forward with his plan to redeem humanity. And Christ's arrival is the signal that all the things, all the good things, all the things that the righteous people of old had been hoping for and looking forward to, that those things have finally arrived with Christ. Now, let's look closely at verses 11 and 12. And we see here in these two verses, where the author relays to us the specific actions that Christ took to enact this covenant. And just follow along with me really quickly as we highlight the things that the author tells us that Christ has done. We're told that Christ has come as the high priest, that he has passed through the tent, that he entered into the most holy place, and that he has secured eternal redemption. Christ came, he passed through, he entered, and he secured. Everything that the author is telling us about Christ's actions mirrors what the earthly high priest would do on the Day of Atonement. And all of this is presented to us with the understanding that everything that Christ does is superior to the work of the high priest, that what Christ does is the definitive, the ultimate work, uh, and it is much better than the work that the earthly high priests could do. So let's unpack what that means. We have to remember that the earthly high priest served in the earthly tabernacle, and that the tabernacle here on earth was just a sketch and a shadow or a model of the true heavenly tabernacle. But Christ passed through, not the earthly tabernacle, Christ passed through into the true heavenly temple. He did not enter into the tabernacle that was made by hands. Instead, he entered into the heavenly tabernacle that is not of this world. And what did Christ do once he entered into that true heavenly tabernacle? Once he passed through the veil that separated the holy place from the rest of the tabernacle. Christ entered into the most holy place. He went into God's presence and right before God's very throne. 
But again, Christ's entrance into the most holy place is superior to that of the high priest here on earth. We remember that the earthly high priest would enter into the holy of holies once a year. And each year, the priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies to perform the work of atonement. And we also remember that the high priest, in order to gain entrance into the Holy of Holies, would have to take with him a, uh, the blood of a sacrificed animal so that his sins would be atoned for, and that would allow him to do the work of atonement for the people. But this, again, is not so with Christ. Christ does not need to enter the Holy of Holies again, and he does not need to enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a sacrificed animal. Christ enters into the Holy of Holies, into the most holy place, by the virtue of the shedding of his own blood. Christ can enter into the Holy of Holies because he is perfect. He is completely without sin. He is totally righteous. And because of that, there is no barrier separating him from God. He can go directly into God's presence. And with that, Christ can go into God's presence because God, Christ is God. He is able to go and bridge that gap that we could not cross ourselves. And the author tells us, he reminds us that Christ doesn't have to do this annually. He doesn't have to do this again and again and again. The author says that Christ entered into the Holy of Holies, Ephapax, Ephapax, once and for all time. The, uh, it's, a, it's a very definitive word there that the author uses. And the sacrifice of atonement that was made by Christ does not need to be renewed yearly. It is good once and for all of time. It is good forever. And in offering himself as a uh, sacrifice of atonement for us, Christ secured for us eternal redemption. Christ paid forevermore the price that our sins demanded us. And he freed us from those sins. He paid the ransom. And now we see that everything that Christ does for us is better than the work that the earthly high priests could do. And because of this, because the work that Christ does is better than the work of the earthly high priest, along with that, we understand that Christ is able to do for us the things that the earthly high priest could not do. Christ is able to remove our sins. Christ is able to forgive us. And Christ is able to change us. And so now let's look at verses 13 and 14 and look at exactly how Christ fixes us. We remember last week in verse 10 that the author told us that the regulations of the law could do nothing to save us. Uh, we were told that these external regulations were just to make us ceremonially clean, uh, but that they could do nothing to fix us on the inside. They couldn't, uh, as the authors say, they couldn't perfect our conscience. They couldn't fix our sinful nature. And then here in verse 13, the author returns to these same ceremonial cleanses, and the author asks a very important question about them. 
The author refers back to the cleansing rituals that were prescribed under the law, to the animal sacrifices of goats and bulls that we've talked about a lot uh, with in regard to the Day of Atonement. And the author even also uh, mentions the ashes of a young cow that would be mixed with water. And that's a reference to a special ritual that was known as the ritual of the red heifer. Uh, and in that particular sacrifice, a young cow would be slaughtered and sacrificed and burned, uh, and its ashes would be mixed with water. And anyone who became ceremonially unclean, uh, for example, if they came in contact with blood or with a dead, uh, dead body, they could drink this mixture of ashes and water and they would be made clean again. And so the author presents these cleansing rituals and the author asks, if these rituals could make you ceremonially clean, if these ceremonial cleanses could fix you, if the blood of an animal could temporarily atone for you and make you clean, then how much more could the blood of Christ? How much cleaner could the blood of the perfect, unblemished one who passed through the heavenly tabernacle into the most holy place, how much more could his blood make you? How much cleaner could Christ's once and for all sacrifice make you? How much cleaner could this sacrifice, which never has to be done again, how much cleaner could it make you? And then the author goes on to describe the superiority of Christ's sacrifice by telling us that Christ's sacrifice did for us the very thing that none of the other regulations and sacrifices could do. The author told us last week that the sacrifices and offerings could not uh, perfect, could not clean our consciences. But here we're told that through Christ and his sacrifice and his dying on the cross for us, that Christ catharizo, purges, purifies us. He purges us from our old sins and he purifies us not just outwardly, but inwardly as well. Christ's sacrifice frees us from the dead works and the external cleansings, and he makes us alive so that we can worship the living God. Where the law made us outwardly clean, Christ's sacrifice gets to the root of the problem. He fixes our sinful nature. The law provided temporary, topical relief, but Christ gives us the heart transplant that we were dying without. And that's exactly what the author wants us to understand, that the arrival of Christ and his death has changed everything, and that the new covenant that Christ has enacted is going to be the covenant through which God redeems humanity. And Christ's arrival and his death signaled that finally the new day that God had promised would come is now here and that God is moving and working mightily to save his people. The famous uh, minister and theologian and hymn writer, 
Isaac Watts uh, once penned a a hymn entitled Faith in Christ Our Sacrifice. And I wanted to read a few lines of it to you because uh, these words go perfectly with what we're talking about today in our text. And just listen to these couple of verses uh, as I read them to you. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My soul looks back to see the burdens thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree and knows all her guilt was there. Believing, we rejoice to see the curse remove. We bless the lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. And these words, much like the words of the author of Hebrews, communicate to us the critical point that Christ's blood and sacrifice are what we need for salvation, and that there is no salvation outside of Christ and his blood. And with that in mind, I want you I want to ask you loved ones to do some very serious introspection, to do a thorough examination of your spiritual life. And as you do that, I want you to ask yourselves this question. Ask yourselves, how am I worshiping the living God? Because here's the thing, What the author of Hebrews says in verse 14 is true. If we have been washed in the blood, washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb, then we will be actively and enthusiastically and joyfully worshiping the Lord. We will be worshiping the Lord that way because Christ has freed us from the dead rituals that we were once enslaved to. He has purged our conscience. He has given us new hearts, new natures, and he's given us joy and peace. He has enabled us to actually live as the people of God. But are we living like that? Are we living like people who have been completely changed by the gospel and who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ? And if we're not, my question is, then why aren't we? Why are we trying to do things on our own? Why are we trying to appease God with our good works and with the labors of our hands? Why do we think that we can appease God just by tuning into these sermons each and every week when we don't spend any time with him or thinking about him throughout the rest of the week? Why are we looking for hope and for good news in this world when there is none there to be found? When are we, loved ones, going to start being serious about God and start seriously living as his people? 
Because if the good news, if the news that Christ has come and died to free us and to forgive us of our sins, and because of that, we uh, no longer have to face the wrath of a just and holy God, if that news doesn't give you hope, if it doesn't give you joy, if it doesn't make you want to live differently, then what will? Way back, when we first started this study of Hebrews, we read in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. And as we've gone through Hebrews, we have gotten a better understanding of what that son has done for us, how he saved us, and the lengths that he went to to free us from our sin and from the judgment that we faced. And so today I want to ask you the same question that I asked you all those many weeks ago. It says that the son is still speaking to us today, but are we listening to him? Are we listening to him and following him and living as his people? And if we're not, loved ones, I want to know who's in your ear. I want to know who you think is more worthy of you listening to them than Christ. I want to know who you're listening to instead. Because this commitment that we make to Christ. It is an all or nothing commitment. You can't listen to Christ on Sunday and say you live for him when you're living like the rest of the world the rest of the time. You can't say that you're listening to Christ and living for him if you only ever treat him like a vending machine and you come to him when you need something from him. You're can't listen, uh, say you're listening to Christ and say that you're following him if you're still putting your hope and your trust and your faith in things other than him. You're either all in on Christ or you're not. Makes me think of some advice a guy I used to work with once gave me. When I first started seminary, I had quit my full-time job, I had gone back to school, and I needed work. And so a buddy of mine hooked me up with a job working the midnight shift at UPS, which is very honorable work, and it's very demanding work. And uh, I would go into UPS every night, and I would work several hours, uh, and then I would go home very early in the morning, and I would go to seminary and work my campus job uh, and be in class all day come home after that, sleep for maybe two hours, and then would go to UPS that night. It was a very demanding schedule. It was a very taxing schedule. It was wearing me down. It was breaking me down. I could not sustain it. It was just impossible to keep up with. And one night as I was uh, at UPS and I was sorting boxes, a fellow next to me said, Charles, you're not going to make it doing it the way you are. And I said, what do you mean? And I thought he was talking about uh, my pace that night or, or something of that sort. I said, what do you mean? And he said to me, you're trying to live in two worlds. You're trying to be a day person and a night person. And you can't do this job if you're trying to live in both worlds. You can't do this job if you're trying to live in the day and live 
and the night. And he was exactly right. What he was saying to me was this. I could not have this job working nights if I was also trying to have a life during the day. I needed time to rest and recover so that my body could meet the demands of this nighttime job, but I had no time for rest and recovery if I was trying to live in the day as well. Loved ones, the same is true for us and our Christian walk. We can't be all in for Christ. We can't live for Christ. We can't listen to Christ if we are still trying to have a foot in the world and listen to what the world is doing and to live according to the standards of the world. We're going to go crazy. We're going to break down mentally and spiritually, and we will not be able to be the people that Christ has called us to be if we're trying to have it both ways. So loved ones, whose camp are you in today? Who are you listening to today? And if you say you're listening to Christ, loved ones, are you living like it? And are you worshiping like it? Would you join me now as we pray? Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for the salvation, Lord, that is found in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the length that you and he went to to bring us back to you, Lord, for the shedding of his precious blood. Lord, we thank you for the truth of this message today, for the beauty and the superiority and the finality, Lord, of the sacrifice that Christ made for us, for us to know that he has done this work of salvation for us once and for all, and that the redemption that he has given us, Lord, is eternal, that it will never go away, Lord, that it will last and endure as long as you last and endure. But Lord, help us to draw close to you. Lord, help us to put the things of the world away and to stop caring about what the world says, to stop seeking our satisfaction and our self-worth uh, from the standard of the world. Lord, help us to listen to your Son and listen only to him, to focus only on what he has called us to do, Lord, and not to try to ride the fence, Lord, not to try to listen to Christ and also appease the world. Lord, help us to understand that this world is not where we belong. This world is not our home, and this world is no friend of ours. So help us stop trying to be a friend of it. Lord, I pray that you will work in us, that you will move us, Lord, that you will stir our hearts, that you will invigorate our spirits, Lord, that you will put in us a fire to share your gospel and to spread your message, Lord, for us to be the prophetic voices that the world needs today, Lord, and to speak your truth and to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Lord, guide us direct us, provide for us, watch over us, Lord. Help us to find our refuge in you and you alone. Lord, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.